0: What was it like writing and self-publishing uh, Great Beginnings? And this was back in 2013. And uh, it's kind of like the the Wild West of self-pub in that era. And I just, I'm curious for your whole take on that.
1: It was just super high, like in the best way. Um, the original cover sucked. I had no idea what I was doing. The original editing was bad. But the process of purely writing and be able to share my story and getting live time feedback and redeveloping and editing the series to be better nothing was better it was like writing as this purist and i missed the initial 2012 gold rush where like Hugh howie and everyone like if you put a book out there you just minted money amanda hawking Hugh howie and like it was like i wish i'd done it earlier but i kind of don't because i didn't know what i wanted to do and like but i saw it as viable and that was cool like they, those people gave me hope like oh self-publishing is a thing i didn't even think about going traditional i was like i just want to write my story and i know i can get better if i practice and this will let me practice no one can say no the book can go out i can get feedback and i can write the next one better
2: What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 61 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and welcome to your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, the true to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, MJ Kuhn. How's it going, MJ?
0: Hello. I am lovely. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well. Thank you. And for anyone who wants to support MJ's work, you can go pick up a copy of Among Thieves. There is no fucking, but there are thieves and heists and all kinds of fun, morally gray characters. So if you like Kings of the Wild, The Lies of Locke Lamora, go get yourself a copy of Among Thieves and go pick up a pre-order for Thick-Ass Thieves. Sorry, Thick-Ass Thieves. <laughs> still
0: no fucking, um,
2: <laughs> Still no fucking. And that is out on July 25th. So go get yourself a pre-order and support MJ. As well, a quick note for listeners, the official SFF Addicts Patreon and merch store are live, so check the links in the description to support what we do here. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app, and subscribe to the FanFighted YouTube channel, where this and every other episode of the show is available in full video. And now, welcoming today's esteemed guest author, the one, the only, R.R. Vierdi author of The First Binding, The Grave Report series, and more. How are you, Ronnie? I'm great. I'm super happy to be here with you guys. This is fantastic. Um, I love the first time I was here before. So, oh, dude, I'm so excited about this. Likewise. It's just friends talking shit and having a good time and (laughs) enjoying some SFF. But to get things started for anyone who isn't familiar with you, Ronnie, tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, So I am, uh, as you just said, the author of The First Binding, which came out last year and recently just won the Webster Award. Um, Thank you. uh, I've been writing (laughs) SFF or publishing since 2013. I started Indie. I went hybrid when I signed with Tor Books and uh, Golang's back in 2020, so three years ago at this point. And beyond that, I've I've always been a Northern Virginia kid, grew up in the Washington, D.C., greater area. I grew up uh, very traditionally South Asian, but also very badly South Asian in that I didn't live up to any (laughs) of my parents' and ancestors' expectations. I failed math and dropped out of it in senior year i dropped out of college You're not a lawyer I, yeah i'm not a doctor lawyer engineer um instead i actually gravitated towards uh, automotives like hot, i used to hot rod uh race build restore muscle cars specifically uh boxing uh traditional martial arts i'm very much like the weird jock in fantasies i've probably been called by other people at this point um, take that alex darwin <laughs> oh, yeah i forgot yeah he's a brazilian jiu-jitsu guy yes it's so, like me and him would get along great
0: yeah go you guys could spar sometime
1: oh i have no ground game he would murder me (laughs) oh yeah i I hit really hard i've I've done all striking martial arts but i can't grapple
0: but i've done none of the above so both of you could just absolutely destroy me um i'm curious (laughs) (laughs) what was your entry point into reading so like you said you're like you you're interested in some uh more traditionally jock fields and stuff but what was your gateway drug to nerddom
1: Oh, so I actually owned the books too. Thank God, I had to go find them. But um, so it was Star Wars specifically. Yes. Um, this was like the early '90s, so Star Wars had just like come back to theaters. They did like um an anniversary rerun, and a friend of mine had uh, taken me. He for, well, first for my birthday that year, he got me this New Hope set of like these bronze figurines. They were like they were colorless, all little bronze. So cool to me because I, I didn't understand it. Like I saw C3PO and Darth Vader with his lightsaber, and they were all just bronze colored but i didn't understand like what this was but they looked amazing he's like oh you haven't seen star wars he's like well it's in theaters like let's go and we actually started with empire strikes back not Ooh, new hope and, but i was just captivated case with it it utterly took me away and then i watched yeah. new hope and obviously the build to like the vader reveal was kind of like muted for me but i was <laughs> right? still able to appre- but i was still able to appreciate it knowing like where right. it came from and then at the time the 90s had the huge boom of star wars books um david farland was doing the courtship of princess leia all the ip work was happening kevin J. anderson was doing young jedi knights and the Timothy's books that really zahn. sold me timothy zahn <gasps> were uh the han solo Thrawn. trilogy um The Han Solo trilogy is a very personal favorite of mine. I was checking it out weekly over and over from the local library, and I just started reading everything Star Wars. And I'm not ashamed to admit this, at this day and age, I own digitally through like humble bundles and collections. I have the entire um, original Legends EU of Star Wars, like every single book they've ever written. Nice. That's Legends and now decanonized, unfortunately. I have every single
2: one of them. But there's um, They're still they're still my true Star Wars. Yes, yeah, that's personally. my true Star. I'm <laughs> gonna get thing. canceled for that one, aren't I? <laughs>
0: it can be canon if it's canon in your heart. <laughs> yes, yeah. right.
2: It's like Kotor is my just like safe place. So fuck <laughs> you, Lucas.
0: <laughs> I love it. Ten out of ten. Take.
1: And then from there, two um, thousands, uh, I. Just started like like sixth grade, so I was still in elementary school. But Dresden Files had just come out, and I had been getting recommended it a couple of times, and I finally just actually got into it, and it blew me away. Um, because I hadn't really seen much urban fantasy in literature at the time that I was familiar with beyond maybe some early tv shows you know buffy had just started i believe and prior to that the only interest i had was comics but there was nothing really urban fantasy at the time it was more urban occult horror um something i grew up with was uh, the john constantine original hellblazer novels which Ooh. i should not have been reading as a kid so by bad. the way it was extremely <laughs> dark um super graphic it was terribly manipulative um just the things john Con- john constantine's not a good Human being at times. Um, <laughs> but it opened me up to this idea of magic in the contemporary world, and Dresden fulfilled that. And that, that to this day has become a very personal, close, and favorite series of mine. And that kind of really put me down the doors of reading. Um, it, if Star Wars started me. It was Dresden Files
2: that actually just blew me away and closed the deal. Me yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, I love Dude, that.
2: That's so cool. So, would you say that it was Jim Butcher who kind of shifted your thinking in terms of like, fuck yes, I want to be a writer? and 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 kind of propelling you onto yes and no it's a horrible story of
1: what actually sold me and i I gotta be careful maybe i can just say it so part (laughs) of this is a dark story which i talked to you about adrian that uh summer of age 18 uh before i went to college it was summer um i didn't know what to do with my life and i tried to take mine and it was unsuccessful it was both successfully unsuccessful because i actually tapped out but the way i hung myself it it, the the cordage broke and i stressed the ground so hard i was like Brought, oh my gosh not resuscitated but like i snapped out of it because i yeah. lost consciousness and i was kind of like in a listless area for a while and then i was talking to my friend at this time we'd read a very famous author that we had also grown up with in the 90s and he killed a prominent character and this isn't george R. R. martin and we were like you can't do that you can't kill a main character like that, that's horrible you're a terrible writer <laughs> yeah. like 22 times new york times bestseller right um, you can't write and we're like we, we can do it better like let's just do it and write our terrible high fantasy with our self projections in it. And we just started doing it this, like that summer we sat down at a computer and we started writing out the God, most awful like fantasy <laughs> ever that is banned by the Geneva convention for torture to read. And like I, I think like the princess my character was going to rescue was literally a Megan Fox insertion. Cause transformers had just come out. So she was like the most attractive wow. person on the planet. Right. <laughs> um, it was bad, but I fell in love with the actual act of writing, Like everything yes. in my life made sense. I was happy. Um, I was fulfilled. I was like, wow, I read so many books, like I can learn this, like I may not be good yeah. at it now. But it feels like if I practice, I can get somewhere with this. And I stuck with it. Since 18. Um, So like, yeah, I got 15 years now at this point.
2: Yeah, man,
0: I love that. When I mean, that's such an important part of the journey, right? Where it's like realizing I suck at this. And I feel like so many people go, I suck at this, I give up. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the mark between someone that ends up actually publishing a book. uh, It's, I suck at this. I need to get better at it.
1: Exactly. Um, And having a career, to be honest, because not everyone blows up on the first book. Some do. It's rare. But I've been very fortunate to hear Jim Butcher's stories of success. And it took like five or six Dresden books, as well as selling Codex of Alera, before it was like a tangible living. So that's, you know, you're halfway the first set of 10 books as well as selling a whole nother series in advance that that's a lot of work and you yeah. put in the work for it
0: oh for sure for sure well and that's i'm curious to kind of start into your your publishing journey and oh, let's sure. start with your self-publishing journey okay um so what was it like writing and self-publishing uh great beginnings and this was back in 2013 and I. It's kind of like the, the Wild West of self-pub in that era. And I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious for your whole take on that.
1: <laughs> it was super high, like in the best way. Um, the original <laughs> cover sucked. I had no idea what I was doing. The original editing was bad, but the process <laughs> of purely writing and be able to share my story and getting live time feedback and redeveloping and editing the series to be better. Nothing was better. It was like writing as its purest. And I missed the initial 2012 gold rush where like Hugh Howie and everyone, like if you put a book out there, you just minted money amanda hawking hugh Howie, and like it was like i wish i'd done it earlier but i kind of don't because i didn't know what i wanted to do and like but i saw it as viable and that was cool like they, those people gave me hope like oh self-publishing is a thing i didn't even think about going exactly. traditional i was like i just want to write my story and i know i can get better if i practice and this will let me practice no one can say no the book Same. can go out i can get feedback and i can write the next one better um <laughs> And I did. And weirdly, the book was still selling because, like, it was like at the tail end of the gold rush where people were still checking out self-pub. And I got the usual, like, inherent, like, oh, self-pub is bad. But the book was earning money every month and not like a little bit. It was earning like a decent amount. And I was like, yeah. okay. And then I took two years instead to write the second book, really pushing my craft. And then that debuted and it was up for the Dragon Award that year, alongside with Jim Butcher, MK Jemison, and a few others. And then the profile highlight of that, um, I believe The Verge covered it. And they've got like, what, millions of like readers? Oh, yeah. Instantly, it was like, okay, four figures a month from two books with no advertising. It it was a living and an income. Um, And I was like, okay, this is really possible. I just need to work on my craft. Um, I I should have also been working on marketing at the time, but I didn't know that. And I also admit, (laughs) everyone's different. I am infinitely more craft-oriented, interested than marketing. I I will never say marketing is not important for an indie. It absolutely is. I could argue that. Um, it's almost just as important, maybe even more depending on who you are because everyone writes for different reasons. But I, I like the craft more. I would rather work a million times harder to put out a book that might flop because I don't market, but I'm happier <laughs> with it than marketing, which is terrible business advice. And I will admit that. But it's no, what but I love about it. name Andy. is
0: on it and it's out there. So I, I get that. I understand
1: yeah. that. Yeah. And that's just what's kept me going through self-publishing. I took a risk. And this, again, this is bad business advice, I'll admit it. But I wrote a, <laughs> a book in a spin-off series that sets up a larger part of my urban fantasy world. But because it wasn't book three, my sales eventually died down from the, the explosion of that uh, the award and the verge. But I put out book three eventually, and I learned to put out a reader market uh, magnet. And slowly those things picked up again, too. Um, Indy taught me a lot about flexibility, pushing my craft, But more than anything, it taught me habits and like a level of joy. I haven't really felt as much being traditional right now because there's different work expectations and different loads and different stuff. Different Um,
0: pacing. and Different pacing.
1: Yeah. Like I write faster than my publisher can publish uh, because of my time as indie, which has actually really been mentally hampering because, again, I love the act of writing. That's what connected me and bonded me to self-publishing in the first place. And it's really weird to be able to write stories and not be able to do anything with them because exactly. contracts and they're yes. like, well, well, let's just get the next book from me. I'm like, <laughs>
2: that's <laughs> but done. But okay. these
0: other ones. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But how does how is it for you to kind of look back at that? Because you, you were in the tail end of the, the gold rush after like Hugh Howie and that and that uh, initial boom. How is it for you to kind of like view the self published space today? Oh, God, it's really amazing. Back
1: then, I've never been happier to watch so many people go indie off the, the get go, which I don't know if I got yeah. canceled for saying that being tried now. Um, <laughs> yeah, fuck it. But like, no, I'm happy. Well, here's the thing, and this might get political and I got to be careful, but a little while ago, we saw people in the traditional sphere trying to acquire Lit RPG, um, wanting to bring it into that. And I was not the earliest, but I was in the early sphere of one of the people who published Lit RPG, maybe a year or two after the genre really got started. So I wasn't an early adopter but earlier before way what it is now and i think there's a lot of ignorance on some genres and why they succeed indie and i think that's beautiful that it, genres can become this microcosm that only work there because it also yeah. creates an ecosystem for authors to create a living there mm-hmm. and the market would not work traditional because of the margins they need the price points they sell at and not the understanding that they, it takes to the publish. time Accessibility yeah. and structure. So, one example: a lot of lit RPG readers are younger people. They don't necessarily have a budget. In some cases, and sometimes many cases, to buy one 14.99 ebook versus yeah. ku ten ninety nine and read all of them. They're binge readers, yeah. and they should be allowed to have that market space, um including the writers making a living at that price point market space. That wouldn't work traditionally, and essentially, you could kill a lot of people who are maybe in what would be the equivalent of like a lit rpg mid list maybe they're not six seven figure earners but they're making 50 60 80k whether side income or full time they deserve to have that market space and that's existed now larger in indie um so one reason that i love it is also this i've been told consistently urban fantasy is no longer hot traditionally um when i was already succeeding and making a small living from it in the like 2016 2017 i had traditional editors tell me no one's buying it unless your last name is butcher (laughs) briggs Cadre, or Hearn. You're like, I know, Interesting. Indies.
0: There's so many people buying it from
1: me. <laughs> exactly. And, and and way larger hmm. than me. I know indies who are making six, seven figures doing it. Um, I was just slower. And I've seen this exist for a lot of people. Like um, we talked about some indie authors earlier. I don't want to name names only because like I don't know how it could be interpreted, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but there's certain subgenres of fantasy, for example, that traditional is just not acquiring because it's not hot to them. But like like if you're writing Dragon Rider Fantasy, most Chad pups aren't buying it right now. I don't know why, but there's there's things but it's huge the fan base, In it's huge it's huge and the fan base is there and mm-hmm. you should be allowed to write and sell to that so i think it's just it's for me it's just like tear-jerkingly almost beautiful i'm so happy to see people who just love writing because it's a full market exchange there are people who love writing creating what they love there are people buying it the author's making a living and people are entertained and that's what this is about at the end of the day like all the hoity toity stuff out of it you're happy creating art someone's happy consuming it you have two like this full side of happiness like and people are getting paid mm-hmm that's what it like should a be about win win
0: win win yeah everybody it is wins. it is
1: yeah. and and i'm happy to see a lot of the stigma going away it hasn't gone away completely from what i see at times yeah but watching so many indies now just go indie for the first time without fear without going like oh it's a backup plan or rejection or looking at it in a negative light just like oh no this is a viable option i'm happy to do it i have whatever because like all publishing should be valid like i'm not trying to rag on trad like you shouldn't go trad if you don't want to or if you want to it's just I didn't like the fact that Indy was getting that. And I'm happy now that there seems to be a lot more of an equilibrium. Um, and we've seen people go hybrid, which we've talked about, which I think is also awesome because it offers more income and money and flexibility to people from traditional who might want it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, I love that. I've, I've always said, uh, and I know I, I am so thrilled. I'm with you. I'm so thrilled that there's less of a stigma. It's less of a divide. Cause when I was first entering this space, it did very much feel like the indie pub people were like, uh, trad pub is hacks and sellouts. And you know what I mean? And then the trad pub people are like, oh, like, indie pub is wh- whatever. And I love Unprofessional, some of just that.
2: like with your shitty covers and blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah,
0: blah. Right. And I love that that's going away. And it's just like, do what is best for you, for your book, mm-hmm, for each mm-hmm. individual project. And that's why I think not only is,
2: not only that but like future, do yeah. do what's best for you as an yes. author. Yes. Correct. As as an author and what you're capable of in terms of like Right. What Absolutely. Your, what your like workflow is, your writing speed the, your budget
0: too, right? Your budget as well. That's the, why the, I went trad from yeah. the beginning, is because it does to, cost money up front, yeah, and I was
2: yeah. poor. Exactly. Yeah. But also, it's like, do you have like an entrepreneurial spirit? Do you have like right. an ability to kind of straddle that line between? <laughs>
0: Arguably, you kind of need that in trad these days
1: too. That,
2: you you <laughs> absolutely do. Yeah, you absolutely oh, do. Yeah. And and this too, like to straddle that line between between creative and and marketer. You know yeah. which trad people have to do as well, which is like, oh god damn it! <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no escaping the marketing life. No
2: escape. There is no I escaping it. this world.
0: Well, let's pivot back to your books more specifically, because I know you talked uh, a bit about how the the Dresden Files, Jim Butcher, uh, was kind of one of your first like obsessions um, in in the book world, um, and I just want to dig into that a little bit deeper. So, what appealed sure. to you specifically about writing? urban fantasy and then oh, urban fantasy okay. detective stories like what drew you to that immediately
1: it honestly felt like the perfect culmination of a lot of other stuff that i grew up with that i loved so something i didn't talk about earlier that did influence me but i never gave credence to at the time was my mother was a big horror and like early mystery detective uh reader she'd have all these books laying around so when i couldn't get the books i wanted from sff i just read those and i didn't at the time realize how much they correlated with certain structures and beats that I would find later in urban fantasy because it's uh, it's an evolution of the detective noir genre with early occult horror that eventually became more fantastical. And now being a writer and someone who's a craft whore, I can go back and trace it and I can see that beautiful evolution. <laughs> but i whore. oh i am like the biggest craft whore <laughs> like it like i it got I, I get called that and the discord that we talked about before where like sunny scott drakeford and stuff yeah. at one point i think it was richard swan he's like yeah ronnie's just a craft whore and i was like all right that's my name in discord now
0: <laughs> you're like i um, love it
1: thank I'm you richard it. yeah um that. but i i re- grew up with so much like the the richard spencer i mean the the spencer detective novels by robert b parker um i've got walter mosley on a shelf over there i've got um uh, uh, Oh my God, how am I forgetting his name? He's like the grandfather of the genre and his book's over there. Uh, the Postman Rings Twice. And um, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. I could like literally just rip the curtain aside and the book's
2: over there. But um, uh, let so me just long... look this up real quick. Yeah, I was going to say, I am not able uh, to help
0: you. But it's, the reason why you're blanking is because you're on camera James right M. now. James
2: M. Yes,
1: James M. Cain. <laughs> yeah. And then there's one, Raymond Chandler. That's what I'm thinking of. Raymond Chandler, <laughs> I, yeah. I grew up with a lot oh, of like Raymond Dash Chandler Hammond. books. Yep yep i've got all of them literally back there like i have a shelf just for detective novels like straight up mystery and with the love affair i had of Dresden, the other aspect is urban fantasy allows you to bring in so many things from other people's cultures beautifully and present it in a contemporary setting and i hadn't seen much doing that at the time fantasy was very western european flair um and everything sorcery yeah in urban fantasy i was like well this is set today so you could have different kinds of mythology today you could have different kinds of characters and before I got to writing this, one of my favorite TV shows through my teens was Supernatural, which is doing a similar thing. It, um, it wasn't urban. It's a contemporary. But it also had a love affair of another genre of mine, which is westerns, where the structure is literally supernatural. You show up in town on your trusty horse, which is their car. The two, the two <laughs> characters are really like the sheriff. And they literally go to bars looking around for clues. Yeah, and then they yeah. have a high noon showdown with the monster. And they get back on their horse and they ride off in the sunset and do it again. But they were bringing in so much weeks, mythology maybe. and people from – all over the world, people that look like me, look like you, look like everybody. And it was like, this genre is a perfect blend that lets me do anything I want to represent mm-hmm. whatever I want. It seems like the ultimate playground. And that's what attracted me to urban fantasy, including the, the style of the character I have, because he changes bodies every novel. He's a new person. I can do new settings, locales, mythology, um, new looks and identity. And it, it just was like the perfect thing for me.
2: Oh, dude, that's so cool. Yeah, I'd never thought about it that way, because it's like, I, it took me a while to get into urban fantasy. And the urban fantasy that I read that that was like earlier on, I wasn't necessarily aware of the fact that I could call it urban fantasy. It's like yeah. reading like American gods. And I'm just like, I'm not yeah. really cluing in. I feel
0: like it's one of those kind of, of nebulous thing. genres, right? Where it is it like yeah. straddles several and people categorize it, it differently. It gives and you
2: so much fluidity thing. because of yeah. that though. Yeah. Yeah. But building on that, it's like, all genres are kind of nebulous when it comes down to it. And I know oh, you marketing true. points at the end of the day. That's <laughs> yeah, what they really are. Yeah, forget about so. how age exactly. ranges.
0: What is YA? We can <laughs> okay. talk about that yeah, for yeah. three hours.
2: <laughs> yeah. MJ, you're YA, right? There's, <laughs> there's no fucking. Don't <laughs> there worry. There's
0: no fucking. You're right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh is that is that what defines YA? Good to i could know. Don't, okay yeah you can swear,
1: there's
0: fucking you can in swear YA novels so i don't know anymore i don't <laughs> yeah. want
1: to read about teens like they don't know what they're doing okay and whatever yeah. no <laughs> like, i actually thought this was hilarious so what happened in to the days um, of
2: like heavy petting come on people
1: <laughs> that's this is 2023 that's a kink now and we don't kink, <laughs> kink. <laughs> um i actually had a fan send me like a picture that i think it's in brigham university uh next to brandon's books is a copy of uh, the first finding, but both his book and mine are in ya interestingly enough and really? i'm like what <laughs> yeah they were shelved in the ya section
2: it was like like
0: okay you, sure that, dude that <laughs> was like
2: that was like uh i went to a i went to a, a spanish uh bookstore here in here in quito in ecuador and they have the basically like the young the english section but the english section is divided into young readers and 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 everything else pretty much but then right next to the young The young readers section, they have like uh like the Spanish young adult section. Yeah. And I've walked by and I just like saw all the new orbit editions of The Witcher, and I was like, no. Oh no. No. (laughs) And I literally went to one of the people working there in Spanish, telling them like like, this is the least YA. You're
0: probably gonna want to move those books.
2: Yeah. No, I straight (laughs) up because like, dude, it took up like three feet. (laughs) Of the shelf. And I was like, you're going to oh, want to move that shit. Bless them. That's
1: great. Oh my God. You know? I love
2: it. And she looked at me. It was just like, Oh no. You know, you're I right? could be like super caricature and be like, Ay, Dios mio. I was about to say you that know, too. Like, I was going like, like, to go. Ay, Dios mio. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh man. All right. Well, getting back to genre. I know you like to write across genres and yes. I wanted to get your take on like, what are your feelings about this nebulous shit? And the notion that authors, whether by their own reasoning or by publishers kind of like, pigeonholing them often confine Uh, themselves to a genre or their career ends up getting confined into like a specific thing
1: i hate that's what it is because i have a different theory and i could be completely off base but i'll share my theory um i always wanted to be the guy who could write everything from the craft aspect because again that's what motivates me but i believe those authors also might have a longer career i could be wrong but when i look at guys like Gaiman and king who've written a different styles of books they also write standalones uh king has a series obviously the dark tower which that's sff from a guy who yeah, is a lot fans. of thrillers and yeah. horror um or even fairy the sale, right which just yeah. came out yeah mm-hmm. yeah um i think it allows you to have different inroads to your books where not everyone's gonna like every book you do anyways even exactly. in a series uh, you will pick up new fans lose some old ones but if you've made them as real fans they might just not be there for that book they might come back for the next one, but all you're doing is creating more inroads from a larger audience pool, and that's why I firmly believe. And I don't like the idea of being pigeonholed, but traditional publishing has different theories on that. Um, speaking to my own uh, situation, I've actually pitched certain things where my agent's just like, "No, like, why don't you want to do another good fantasy?" And I was like, "I mean, I do, but like, I'm flexible, and I've got these ideas for standalones, and I like different stuff, and I can write fast enough. Like, let me flex my muscles. Let me let me try to build a larger audience. There's other books I want to do." Um, and he's like yeah maybe It kind of feels like no but um <laughs> we'll see when it actually gets there but
0: it's like I, when you ask your mom for mcdonald's and then she's like we'll see yeah.
1: mcdonald's at home it's you like you have, it. have a fantasy book write another one we, we have fantasy at we home we have
0: sci-fi at home okay yeah
1: exactly and it's like, it's like fucking like, and at the end of the day it's my career so like the best way to build the career you want is to write the books you want it's the only way to get the readers you really want because they will yeah. read the stuff you want it sounds very reductive but it's true Um, if you want to be like the best sci-fi writer, you have to write sci-fi books that you want to write because ideally in the world, there are the readers you want. The rest is obviously the marketing to find those specifically, but nobody is so unique of a special snowflake that only your ideas will be liked by you. Like that sounds weirdly negative, but it's to me beautiful because it means like out of 8 billion people, there are people who will like exactly the book you write. They just are. It's, it's arrogant to believe they're not that you're that special. Like nobody will like you. It's just finding them is a the hard part and that's the marketing and publishing part which gets out of our control but you have to at least do that work to get that work out there that's representative of what you want and i don't like the idea of pigeonholing authors um but it is a sad reality of the industry
2: yeah yeah to basically be like like i talked to adrian tchaikovsky about this last year and basically like how he adores fantasy and started his career on fantasy but then he wrote some really like popular hard sf and and, Space <laughs> yeah. Opera stuff. I and, then, and then and then he was like well shit you know like what do i do because publishers are asking for more of the stuff that sells more and that's and now, what lets him do the fantasy he wants to keep doing unfortunately. exactly like, now he comes back with- and he's like fuck yes like city of last chances like i can yeah, just yeah. kind of get back into this kind of thing again <laughs> that
1: is literally what i'm going through right now i'm pretty sure yeah. i might blow this and like a tour person hears this like not anymore but um, <laughs> my understanding is that like when they publish book two is once it's officially out that way it's and they're checked off it's like yes it's a shipped product now then they're like hey what else do you want to write hopefully um but yeah. until then i'm just sitting there like writing like hundreds of thousands of words and side projects. going like i fucking want to do something with all this shit
2: yeah well uh, what's one genre or story type or medium that you'd ab- absolutely love to experiment with because you and i have talked about like comics before and right now yeah. i know you're like writing a thriller yeah so it's yeah. like <laughs> is there something that it's like you know you want to get to at some point Oh, God, absolutely. Um,
1: uh, There's a couple. Like, so I actually pitched a romance, uh, like an actual, like a fantasy romance. I have okay. it structured out. And it's it's very adult. And But it, it, it's mythology stuff I want to do. And I actually have my UK agent already, like, loved the idea. And a whole group of romance writers loved it. I have two lit fics that I want to do. Um, And I'm talking to a friend of mine who does, like, small indie films and stuff, too, because my background is theater and acting. And it's like, I kind of want to be in these. And they're structured a certain way that from a... From a full storyteller perspective, acting in it and creating it would just be like a beautiful experience to push my craft. Um, which I'm very interested in. And then more contemporary stuff like before like we talked about with Neil Gaiman, like what he likes to write. Um I genuinely actually love that style of fiction. I just haven't been able to do it like traditional. Um that's what I actually would want to write a lot more of than even just fantasy, which I do love to death. And I know I answered like with three different things, but the truth is like I don't want to like not write a genre. I'm I literally love gonna write. Like that fits
0: with what you were saying, where it's like you want to to experiment with everything. Oh, absolutely. um, We
1: talked about it. I've got comic pictures out right now that are being looked at by the major comic people. I'm like, I'm not gonna stop with just books. I'm gonna be writing screenplays and everything if I can. Yeah.
0: I love that. I absolutely love that. Right? I was gonna say craft whore. (laughs) We're here to learn all the
1: crafts. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Like not even a joke. I have like Everything from the Stanford Meisner, um, like acting method books down there that I still have and keep. Um, so acting, screenwriting uh, stuff. Every every how to write a comic book. Everything from Alan Moore's interviews. Like coded on a USB, just so I could rewatch them. Like it, it's nuts. I. <laughs> <laughs> I I have authors that go like, why are you like this? Like in the Discord we talked about. It was like, you can just chill. And I'm like, I, I, I can't though.
0: You're like, you can't no, though. when that's chill, the thing. At chill pain. is Everyone not Ronnie's
1: M.O. Everyone has their thing. Thing. Yes.
0: Yeah. And you're a thing. Or maybe it's just because
1: I'm Asian. Studying. I swear to God, that could be it. It could just be like the perfectionist. You know. <laughs> like I didn't do it with education. So I'm like, I'll yeah. pick oh, up for it with, with writing. Right. This is where I, I can't screw it with. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it doesn't count for my parents it's like still. i didn't become a doctor so this is like my version of a postdoc this is, I don't yeah know. Yes, absolutely. there you go
0: You will become a <laughs> yeah. phd of all things oh, writing absolutely yeah <laughs> i love that yeah
1: still won't count but <laughs> it still
0: won't count well to return to the world of fantasy because i want to talk a little bit about the first binding um because okay. it's fantastic it's I, and, you. you know the listeners that haven't picked it up yet. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's unlike anything I've read. I have already recommended it to several people, um, that especially people that really like the kind of tail within a tail,
2: um, mm-hmm.
0: kind of thing. Cause there's so much of that and even like tail within a tail within a tail, uh, yep. in, in it. it's, it's so good. Uh, I'm curious, what were the origins of the book and, and, and the series as a whole, like where did this come from in your Ooh. Brain.
1: <laughs> so there was actually another standalone novel I was originally going to write, uh, which I can't say because I'm probably going to be able to sell that one. Uh, so I don't know how that works, but like, I probably can't blow that load. But the storyteller <laughs> who eventually became Ari was uh, going to be a character in there. Yeah, I caught what I
2: said.
1: But Ari eventually took over that. And I'm a huge comparative mythology nut. Like, if I could have actually gone to college in terms of like, affording it to what i thought i'd get out of it i would have been a mythology professor but i know that doesn't pay and it costs a lot to do a phd in that i'm like that doesn't yeah. mathematically make sense
2: i'll go fix cars um <laughs> and such a detour i love it right but mythology it's mythology like, to muscle cars <laughs> He's
0: and, a man of many interests adrian <laughs>
2: <It's>, that's adhd
1: <laughs> um, relatable <laughs> but it just like it already took over like in two, two true storytelling fashion he took over and i was like okay my theater background comes in here um i know the comparative myths that make up like most of the fantasy dna um like and i've studied them most of my life because i genuinely love this even before i decided to be a writer i was a mythology nerd because you grew up with wishbone you grew up with aesop's fables you grew up with all these fairy tales and shows that make you like mythology you're like now i have the internet i can learn any myth i want any um and i was like okay I, I i need to do this and then there's a cultural aspect of knowing that how myths were traded along the Silk Road, how stories were. And storytellers were the original rock stars. They performed. Um, you listened to them. And a, a good tavern would want, always want staff because it doesn't matter how rowdy people are. It doesn't matter what the politics are. You have a good storyteller to perform. Drinks are going to be sold. People are going to clap. They'll come back for the next night and next performance. And um, there's a famous book about the Marco Polo of the world before Marco Polo, Ibn Fadlan. He was a Middle Eastern trader who journeyed from the Middle East all the way as far as Russia. And he brought an actual storyteller with him because when you went to new places and you met like different lords and governors and and nobles of estates, the storyteller can make your journey really appealing. Oh, we crossed this great desert. And if you haven't been to the Middle East, there are these animals that – and he describes a giraffe, which is why you have goofy paintings in Europe of giraffes like they've never seen one. Yeah, like a rhinoceros that looks like fucking ridiculous and morphed. Yeah, it's because (laughs) (laughs) they're hearing like a story of an animal they've never seen. They're painting it from that idea. And storytellers were this great commodity. And I'm like, okay. I was like, I want to do this. And like, I got to make him a South Asian character uh, because part of it's like, I want to see that in fiction. And then also all the South Asian myths and tales I could do. And I started deconstructing it. And I was like, all right, the Mabada, which is one of the oldest epics in the world um, after the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian Sumerian one. And um, it's like that's the original frame narrative in the world. It is the oldest frame narrative. And it's got nesting stories and tales within tales. And it's this great epic. Like, all right, so that's my structure right there. And then I was like, how do I do this? And it's like, oh, this whole story is supposed to be told by Ari. So it's going to be a meta-analysis and commentary on storytelling. So it's going to be a love letter to novels I love, as well as the mythology I love, the history of all that. And then it's going to be a reply, a commentary, and an analysis. So every chapter is going to be referencing something, breaking it down. And the more people who are mythology nerds will read this, will get some of the stuff I'm really doing. Because it's written in layers that the more you know, the more you can peel away. And it actually changes the book you're reading. Like, for example, one spoiler I can share because readers have already found this. I don't know if this is going to ruin it for more. But chapter 10 in book one is titled "Brahm," which is an origin story, a cosmogony story of how the universe came into being, at least as far as Ari and people in this universe knows. Because one of the things this the story is not every story you hear is true and what are truths and lies. And it's written with rhyming couplets and quatrains around normalized prose. And then there's a mini section of verse in between this little poem. However, one reader, I don't know how they found this when the book first came out. If you delete all the normalized prose and you leave the rhyming couplets and quatrains in perfect order, the entire chapter is a new epic poem. So there's actually text you can delete Dude. that doesn't rhyme and all the rhymes form a whole poem. And that <laughs> might change God. the story you're reading, maybe or maybe not. I, I'm not going to answer that. But well, there's illusions know. and literary techniques all through this because it's supposed to be love-lard storytelling. So I use as many literary techniques as I can from kennings to epithets. Um, that, that will like seed secrets and stuff to be revealed later on. Um, I like some chapters, the way they're structurally written, reference like other genres altogether, like this is how a Western starts, or this is how um, you know, the climax of this story would go, but it's not where you'd expect it to be. Um and then includes like uh the romantic climax subplot part is a Bollywood number, but it's disguised in a European fair to be accessible. <laughs> but it's it's a, you know, it's a masquerade, but it's singing and dancing with the the romantic uh climax being fulfilled there. And there's a way to make it both Western accessible, but also show the homophily to here. it is done in the South Asian culture with POC characters. Um, An entire series is written that way, which also gets me from my editors. Why are you like this? Because uh-uh. <laughs> then they get like 10 pages of explanations. Why I can't cut one line because it, it matters to the first book. If you do this, this and this, and then yeah. it matters to right. the line and they're like,
2: okay, that's cool. But we hate you.
0: <laughs> they love it. Secret. Yeah. But dude, I
2: love I, like for me reading the first binding, it was so cool to be, cause it's like, I love to read from, from history, not just in science fiction and fantasy. This is an SFF podcast, but I think it is really good to broaden your horizons and understand like where stories come from and the fact that you were able to use real world examples of, of storytellers and um, stories across time and comparative mythology and all this kind of stuff to flesh out the history of your own world and its characters through meta narratives and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, the thing that really like, I just I just been like aching to talk to you about is the notion of the power of stories. Oh, in terms okay. of this,
0: <laughs> you're like I'm in.
2: Um, <laughs> I'm in. In terms of like the 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 history of our own world and the context of the first binding and how the power of stories is kind of like a commentary on our own lived experience and what we've sort of developed as human beings as our overarching narrative.
1: So a lot of that came from my own story, which um, I obviously, well, at least the framing from it did. Um, when I talk about how dark my life's been, and there have been a few times I've actually decided to try to end mine. Um, and obviously the dedication is very clear about how influential Jim Butcher has been in saving that. Um, and the speech he gave me was sort of about the power of yeah. stories, not necessarily in the narrative sense of fiction, but our stories wow. defining ourselves. And um, it, he pretty much said that only you can write your story at the end of the speech. and. He was telling me that um if I ended my life at that point in time, uh, I had essentially written my ending. I had decided what would happen to me. And if I stuck around, um one day I could quite possibly, um uh, quite possibly um be where he was where um uh, <clears throat> uh well, he told me that I could be like him where I could be doing signings. I could do panels. I could, um, be up for awards with him. I could maybe, you know, be an anthology with him and all that. And I'm getting it jumbled up now. Like the exact speech. Um, I apologize for that. it's Um,
0: it's uh,
1: But so many of those things have actually happened since that point. Uh, I was up for the dragon award with him the very first one. And I think I was like the youngest author on the docket that year. Um, and I might still be Jesus in retrospect. Um, and, Years later, uh, just last year, I believe, this happened in 2018 or 19, but an editor reached out and she was like, hey, um, you're invited to Jim Butcher's uh, next urban fantasy anthology, Heroic Arts. So that dream happened and I got the debut. uh, The book came out 2020, uh, 2021, 2022. 2022. It came out last year. Uh, Wow. I got all my dates mixed up, but it (laughs) finally came out and COVID delayed it. Um, But that thing he told me that could happen happened and i got the panel with him for the first time at 2019 dragon con where i was seated beside him and it was recorded too so like that was a dream come true and i took that ethos that everybody's individual story matters and i wanted to reflect it in different ways where the opening of the first binding is ari is coming in as a kind of a cocky performer because he's a person of color in a different land auditioning for a job which is something i've had to go through he's being sort of prejudged by people and then the second he earns his spot he deflates and kind of goes back to being normal. And he immediately makes it about the barkeeper. He starts asking this person's story because I wanted to immediately sort of ingratiate the barkeeper and Ari to the audience, going like, this is a guy from the get go who cares about other people's stories. And he starts asking the barkeeper's story about his wife and his life and everything. And it's not just about meta narratives, it's about the, the idea that people make up these meta narratives. And it's posited through the story. I framed the framing narrative with the theory where. Ari is sort of like a proto-hero, and that his legends have sort of been co-opted and taken by others. But all through it, he's having conversations, still learning about other people and their roles in the world. And it's kind of like you see why his story gets subsumed by others, because people need stories that are important to them to help them get through stuff. And Elloween, like, figures out his story early on, like, oh, you're this guy who's been told everywhere else. And then at the end, this is not spoilers, but somebody else posits this later in the story. Like, yeah, it's almost like all stories come from the same place and the same roots and same ideas. And I kind of like the idea that people are also sort of aware of this. And then through the narrative, you're seeing Ari's story happening. You're seeing the lives of people who've made that story happen or have been part of it and part of that loss. And it's why I have different nesting stories about whether they're gods or heroes and people. Um, And Ari taking time to talk to like an abused kid or taking them in and like trying to understand the story of of individual people is it's personally really important to me. Um, And this was the only way to do that the series, I suppose, is if I have that crux to lean on, or it doesn't work, at least to me, narratively and thematically, it would feel yeah. fake and hollow. Mm-hmm.
0: Huh. I think that's, I, I, that's beautiful. I mean, all of it is beautiful. And the, having the meaning behind that makes it even more beautiful, because I already felt like this book was so deep and almost, I mean, not almost definitely lyrical, because it, literally lyrical in, in, in places oh, yeah. where there's, you know, rhyming and couplets and things like that. But, but even, even just the prose. Um and I, I know you touched on this a little bit, but I want to dig a little bit deeper into you know talking about your own story, but also your your heritage, the story of your heritage, the story of your history and your culture and all of that, and um, you know your the exploration of South Asian culture and and your you know your heritage in this story.
1: Sure. So growing up, um, part of it was uh, my parents were both immigrants. My mom didn't work. Uh, For the first, uh, I guess, 10 years of my life when I was a child, she was specifically full time mother taking care of me um, because and this is I got to be careful how I say this. I'm not trying to mean anything, but there's there's a bit of like very patriarchal stuff in South Asian culture. Right. And I'm the first born and I'm the baby boy. Um, So, yeah, the mom's always going to be home, take care of the baby boy. Um, And my dad was a cab driver, uh, immigrant. And I guess the only kind of connection, this is an assumption is but um, I never got an answer for this. At home was we spoke Hindi, Punjabi, and we spoke South Asian languages. There was no English. I actually didn't learn English until I went to Montessori, which is like preschool before preschool. So I had to learn English with other kids. Um, and that was like the first thing that like South Asian-ness at home is just normalized to me. Like when I'm with my family, I actually don't speak English at all. Um, and it's something that's generationally different because my sisters actually do speak English all the time. They don't speak Hindi and Punjabi. Um, I do, which weirdly enough... Um, and it's just a gap I've realized with them. They can understand it, they just don't speak it. Yeah. Um, and they 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 probably can. They just it,
0: they just don't. It's not their. They natural. just don't. Yeah. And
1: my relationship to them, which was closer to my parents in a way, because I was caretaking them. Because by the time they were older, and my mother started working as well, I always spoke English to them, and that mm. was probably my fault. But um. That's the way I was raised, too. Like, my father, we we didn't watch PBS as a kid. I didn't watch a lot for a long time. I never had cable. Like, I was missing out on, like, when people were talking about Nickelodeon and stuff. Um, My dad would watch Bollywood movies because part of his background and his – this is where the stuff about dreams and dying dreams come from until Tremaine was uh, he actually was in Bollywood for a very short time trying to make it as an actor. Like, he was, like, you know, background number thug, 13 or something and, and stuff like that and had, like, 10 seconds of screen time and trying to get there, and it didn't work out um but i think because that like, he's always had a very close um tie to watching films like he's always been a film buff so i'd watch those and like i'd watch um the indian epic Mahabharata is probably the most epic story retold and it's had like 99 retellings and republishings everyone's written it if you want to make money you rewrite it um and like eighty thousand show versions of it so i'd watch that and be exposed to all these myths and growing up i realized i never saw them really discussed here in the west but being a comparative mythology nut i realized These myths are super similar to certain other famous myths that get talked about all the time. It's like this is my chance to do something with that. Set it along a fictional Silk Road and show how myths and stories change and evolve. Um, This is like my Tolkien-esque attempt in what Tolkien wanted to do was he wanted to recreate a pre-Arthurian mythology. At the time he was writing, uh, everything was a King Arthur centric and the history of Britain is not that. You know, it is a very immigrant state of just different kinds of uh, Anglo-Saxon cultures and you know norse culture especially um in terms of the mythology at least and he went back to the norse epics um he was like okay well, this is my chance to do something like that with asian culture uh, in mass because it's not just going to be south asian but that's where i'll start okay. and it just it weirdly took off the more i researched the more i just read myths over and over and i'm like okay i know how to create like a new proto myth by doing what i want and re stuff that we've already talked about the love letters and talking about existing myths but then putting it the cultural lens that I know.
2: Yeah. And for you, how has it been to kind of like take stuff that is so personal to you and coming from the world of self-pub and then transitioning into traditional publishing but with a story like this and a story that is so deeply rooted in your own heritage, your own personal history, your love of stories, but also what you what you talked about in terms of like what what Jim Butcher was was telling you like being able to tell your own story and being the author of ronnie Vierdi and and what you wanted to put out into the world but then having something so so personal and then that being the one that kind of like hit trad pub and blew up you know
1: (laughs) that's that's been so hard at times because like it's been a weird Like When it first happened, I was like, oh, my God, this is like the greatest thing ever because I actually part of the, not I don't want to say violently, but it was like a reaction to – I actually wrote um, a book that I don't want to talk about. But like It was very commercially successful indie, but I wrote it mostly on a dare, and it actually kind of hurt my soul that it did so much better than everything else I bled my heart and soul into. Um, and I did really work hard on it. It's not like I half-assed it, but it was just the fact that I was like, fuck it. Why not? And I, was like, I, I wasn't as emotionally attached.
0: Right, Uh, Right, which is not to say I
1: didn't try. I really cared about the project. It's just, it just because it was a hot genre at the time. That was the 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 thing. The guy was like, "This person's a very commercial writer, and this is not a criticism at all." But they will like, you know, the whole idea of writing to market, chasing the money, and whatever's hot that they will do. And I completely respect that because you got bills to pay. And I I did that. I was like, "All right, you know what? Their friend, I trust them. I'll write it." And it, it, I made, God, I made like buy a sports car money in in ten days. It was ridiculous. It was an obscene amount of money um, at that time. And it hurt me that that's what it took. And again, this is a personal reaction. This is not a criticism for anybody else. And Tales of Tremaine was like, you know, fuck, I need to do something for me. And everything else that we talked about eventually codified and doing that. And when it went traditional, I was shocked because I didn't think there was a market space for this, um, especially because of the lyrical nature of it. I was working with specifically a voice and lyrical coach that also does South Asian stuff. Because there's different cadences, there's music patterns, and there's certain um, pacing that I'm using with the writing. I don't know if everyone's going to pick up on, but it's personal. It's for me. I'm I'm waiting for that one geek to find it and find the little secrets I did there. Um, So, like, yeah, this is too weird. No one's going to publish it. The only person interested at the time was Audible. And when I got the tour deal, I was staggered because I didn't have an agent at the time. I, like, weirdly circumvented everything. And I was like, okay, this, this must be the sign and and then since it's come out it's been very weird and rocky because like i recently saw a magazine um and this is i gotta be really careful because i don't want to start drama but like they're a prominent magazine in like literature circles and the reviewer who reviewed the book was not south asian but they questioned the south asianness of the stuff which is really funny and weird but also like (laughs) kind of offensive because i'm like i have like a whole slew of south asian authors that love that and get all the south asian references and i'm like bro like who are you to but it's like that's publishing at the end of the day like you can say whatever you want technically if you're not an author i was like all right you know, kind of, it's kind of weird and kind of fucked up but all right like, yeah. I, you could just say you hate the book and i'd be fine with that i'm like all right that's personal but like yeah like, yeah i don't really know how accurate to question the question like is so i was like, like yeah well it's and, like,
0: and bro, as an author I'm, you can't respond either
1: or and i can't I'm respond like, yes guy. yeah oh absolutely yeah, right. yeah so i was like okay well <laughs> like
2: yeah. okay this is weird in, and i've talked in to other different,
1: in space it'd be like yeah fuck and i've talked to other asians about this of different backgrounds when i say asians because they've all sort of run into this and there seems to be this weird like publishing at times wants the exoticism of asian stories but they want it only in a very western accessible way and this isn't a blanket statement not everything's like yeah. this, there is an the undercurrent of like we want eat pray love we want when we see <laughs> india we want very indian indian stuff and i'm like I've got like talking about the caste system and poverty and like very South Asian experiences in terms of um, like the food, the culture, subtle stuff that's just part of everyday. Like the fact that getting a mango lassi, which I included just by a different name, isn't there. But I'm like, that's so normalized. Like I love that stuff when I go there, and like I have. Um, an ice box. This is like that it's a magical version of an ice box. But there's an Indian treat called uh gola, which is like ice gola. It's shaved ice and you put this syrup called Urhavsa on it, which is like a rose colored syrup. And it's super sweet. It's probably why everyone has diabetes. But all they do is they just shave ice <laughs> in the cone and they pour rose syrup on it. Yeah, and yeah. it is the most delicious thing in the world. Um it is not good for you. But Sounds oh my God. It's so good though. <laughs> and all those little things are there. They're just normalized parts of life. And I tried in some places to up the magic with them and make them more sense of wonder and applicable. Um and I, Oh, the greatest one I saw was somebody commented, like, why did I take the, the magical kingdom or the magical school from World of Warcraft? Because that's where they were introduced to Ashram
2: for, or Ashram. And mm-hmm. I was like, those are real places. Yeah. Um, oh, the best one was. Think, think, think about the cyclical nature of how these things oh, feed yeah. in.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing was, this was really funny, was I use Tinkers in my book. Um, But I tried it very clearly and I used the exact words. I didn't create a colang, and this is one I kept true to. I used um, an actual name of a group of people who by cast are called Garia Lohar. And it it means it's Loa is where the word comes from. And Loa is metal or iron. And Garia is like wagon or car this day. It used to mean like a wheeled vehicle. And this is a real cast of people who still exist to this day who by cast were only like roving blacksmiths and tinkerers. Their literal trade that they were only allowed to do is tinker. And I used their actual names so people could Google and find out, like, hey, Tinkers actually have an older history than you know. They're right. not yeah. all just Western European. They exist in other cultures, um, including by trade. Some people are only allowed to do this. And people are like, oh, yeah, you stole Tinkers from, like, you know, the idea of, like, British mythology. And I was like, uh, no, not really. Like, <laughs> There's a lot of analogs of different cultures that came out of South Asia that I'm trying to show here. Um, yeah. I got to be really careful. But, like, it's, I don't want to spoil this stuff. I want people to figure it out. but. Like the history of, like for example, I'll keep this a real world time. But the history of the Romani people, who most people might know unfortunately by the slur that they're given, uh, which is a truncation for Egyptians, which is the closest I'll say to it. Um, but they're not Egyptian. But the reason people thought that is because they were dark skinned originally and they were coming with very Vedic arts. You know, like when you leave a country, you don't have much. What do you pedal. You peddle the idea of palm reading and palmistry and magic, and that's one way to make money. Um, and now uh, the Romani people are obviously very widespread. They exist in all different colors, shapes, all different cultures, um, different names and groups, depending on where you are. Um, but they have an, an origin somewhere else. And it's just that idea of how people and cultures also change that's very central. to so of Tremaine, the longer the series hopefully gets to go on, because I, I have like it's the idea that people and cultures are also stories. That's what makes all of us up on the individual level, the cultural, and societal level. And then they all change, are subsumed and absorbed and traded, and they evolve over time.
2: Yeah, man, it's crazy because we're we're gonna get into this one in our in our mini masterclass on on uh, the heroes and her- heroines journey, but just the the fact that it's like how there is so much of human history that we don't know, and what we do know, there are so many people who don't know anything yeah. about that, and so it's just it's just bewildering to to think like. Oh, somebody can can say you stole an idea, and it's just like no, that idea has existed for s- millennia. And, oh, absolutely. And yeah. How can, how can you how can you say that, that It's
0: just you, you saw know. it first one place, and you assume yeah. that's yeah. also where I saw it.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, that's ridiculous. Ron, I wanted to try and transition into okay. something that we've had some some uh, private conversations about, and this is work the, sure. the the just like the concept of work and the difficulty for so many authors to be full-time authors. So with all of your experience working in various blue-collar jobs and that kind of thing, and then coming to the world of writing, what does work mean to you in that sense? Got it. I don't want
1: to wax poetic about the whole, like, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life because it's both (laughs) true but not true for me, weirdly enough. Like, writing is definitely work some days, but it's work I would be happy to do. And most of the time, and again, this is personal for me, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like work when I bump into other stuff. Like, when I talk about my hands being tied because of contracts or publishing being slow to acquire, then it makes everything I do feel like work. Because otherwise, I will write all day i've sacrificed so much in my life which this is not necessarily a good thing like i if we're going to get to work-life balance well it changes my person right i want this so for me i say
0: that all the time yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: somebody else might not want to actually write eight hours a day i would love to but and that's fine it's different for different people um when i would be working other jobs i specifically take bad jobs if they allowed me the flexibility to write so when i was a mechanic um, I specifically remember this because I had this tablet still to this day. And it's a terrible tablet, but at the time it was good. <laughs> it's a Dell Venue Pro 8. And it was one of the tablets that like actually had a full functional OS. And this was like 2013, uh, 2012. But uh, I was working as a mechanic and Dude, I'd be under the hood of a car, like, waiting for it to drain. Uh, like, I was a Toyota mechanic at this time, like a national dealership. And if I'm doing, like, fluid changes and stuff, and we've got a machine that would do the transmission fluid change for you, like, it's pumping in new fluid while it's taking out, and I've got an oil change going at the same time letting it drain. Dude, I'd flip open the tablet for, like, five seconds if I could. It's like, all right, I've been thinking about this line, write it down, and I'd still crank out two to 3,000 words over an 8-hour shift in those mini micro breaks um sometimes i'm waiting for parts department which by the way if you're mad at dealership mechanics i'm sorry it's not our fault <laughs> parts department is always backed up getting us oils <laughs> and filters and stuff and like believe us none of us get paid enough to want to take 45 minutes on your car like real quick let's lesson on how mechanics are paid we're paid on flat rate meaning if an oil chain says it pays only one tenth of an hour that's all we get regardless if it takes us a fucking hour to do it we will not get paid more so we don't want to work on your car for 45 yeah, minutes that believe sucks. us um, but I would squeeze out any time I could to, to write, um, I've made all the sacrifices in my life to be able to try to write as much as I can. It, it, but it is still, it's become more and more work. Um, reading after the pandemic and burnout and other stuff has felt like work at times, which sucks. Um, it's really hard at times to not read with a critical eye because I'm always thinking about how am I going to create? So how would I write this scene? Which it, it's ingen- disingenuous to the author's book I'm reading. It's not fair. Um, so I had to fight to get back out of like, no, I'm just reading for fun. Um, but all reading is work and studying now at the same time too. And it's like, I remember a piece of a poem and I don't remember who said it, but it goes, and each man kills the thing he loves. And at, at times with all the writers I've talked about who are much older and very long-term successful, they say the same thing too. They barely have time to read. It's really hard at times for them to read because um, they've gotten so far in the craft. like, And the demands are so high that you have to put the next book out.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. MJ, I want to get your take on this in terms of like how important it is for aspiring authors out there to understand the harsh realities of being an author and that many people can't be full-time, even if they wanted to. And then kind of like reconciling that with the dream of like, you know, I feel like everyone kind of goes into it with fucking rose colored glasses of like the dream of being a writer and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Ronnie, like you mentioned contracts and fucking all the bullshit that can accumulate based (laughs) on the fact that like you are a creative, but you're also putting out a product. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah.
0: well that's the thing is it's it's business and art it's both and if you're not ready for it to be both um maybe stick with it for a hobby it's a beautiful hobby you know what I mean mm-hmm. but if I, I mean I, I don't mean that in a bad way but like if, I if you want to publish it yeah. uh whether you're going south pub or trad it's it is a business so you need to be prepared for both sides of it um but I mean, I think our listeners know this. I have a full-time day job. I fully expect to have a full-time day job for a long time. I uh, openly, I, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to get tacky with money, but I make like part-time college job money right now from writing. Um, and that's with two book deals with a major publisher. Um you know, it, yeah. it, it's it's a harsh reality that you're not going oh, to write full-time for a long time uh, unless you happen to strike gold, which some people do. Um, and that's great. And I'm jealous of them, but in the most wholesome way. Uh- <laughs>
1: yeah. It's like, good
2: for
0: you. Yeah. My backup's
1: OnlyFans, so. I mean, yeah.
0: You know what? Every day I get closer to set. No, I'm just kidding.
2: Um.
1: Oh no! In my case, I've had so many fans make jokes, and you've seen adrian's seen the freaking memes, uh, smolder memes. At this point, I'm like, you know what? It just keeps up. I
2: don't.
1: No, 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 I'm not smoldering. (laughs) Not at least today. Maybe it's a
0: natural smolder.
1: (laughs) uh, Don't don't give them more ammo. I literally had like a a people on my Facebook like it and then yeah. they were giving suggestions and the suggestions blew up with popularity with like, oh, you should do like a blue collar car welding only fans. Was like, oh my go. gosh, I fuck up! And then when somebody said that though, the amount of support it got, I was like staggered. I was like, yeah, wait, if I actually did this, the math would check out to make some real money. And they're like, just oh yeah, we're serious. Like, so I was like, dude, I, I people,
2: wasn't. But people just that... want to watch you smolder
1: and tinker <laughs> with engines.
0: <laughs> no hate, man. You know
1: what? I'm, I'm one I'm bad day of... in
2: publishing away from it though.
0: <laughs> you make your bag how you have to, man.
2: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love that
0: (laughs) well in addition to OnlyFans uh (laughs)
2: yeah what else is in your future
0: what's next on the horizon for you I know we have Tales (laughs) of Chimane number two (laughs) yep and um OF what (laughs) what else is coming for you
2: (laughs) oh god the phrasing right there too um oh my god there you go I got uh, another book out and an only just like wait for it it's
0: there we out. go yeah i'm gonna be
2: starting
1: book three later this fall um it's gonna all depend on um tour and acceptance of the manuscript because yeah. if they've been sitting on it for a while which i understand like lots has been going on publishing print costs delays and stuff uh um, I turned in the book originally believe it or not before book one came out but because of other issues and stuff like the, the The finished version hasn't like been accepted yet, so we have to see if they want to change anything last minute, which might cha- force me to change book three stuff. Um, I'm writing Graves four right now for my original urban fantasy series, which fans have been begging me to do. I am currently writing a thriller, which has been getting a lot of interest. Um, I'm, I'm writing a few. I've written a few comic proposals, and I'm actually working with one right now with an indie friend that we're just going to do ourselves no matter what. Love it. Um, again, I, I do. I write way too much. Um,
0: (laughs) no such thing we love it
1: yeah we'll see yeah um god what else uh oh i've got two anthologies i'm in that i don't know if i can talk about yet um i don't know how the anthologies you're allowed because they haven't announced publicly um but i'm going to be drafting short stories for those and then in the tales of tremaine universe i'm drafting currently at least two or three novellas for hopefully publication next year because There's two I want to do that take place between books one and two that I can release as standalones just to increase fandom, give back to the fans, and new readers can pick it up and not lose track of what's happened and not be spoiled, and they can go buy hopefully book one and two. One I want to release alongside with book two because there's a whole arc that I was forced to cut just because of the size of the book. Uh, The original draft, which I told you guys behind the scenes was 450 k and they were like, we can't
2: physically print this book. (laughs) I was like
1: all right so there's like a whole 30k just really cool adventure sequence that i can that I can actually cut and i'm like yeah this is gonna be a cool novella so fans can just get this nice. and be like oh that's what happened there i was like yeah absolutely mm-hmm. it's, it's awesome oh um, i love that that's so awesome. we'll see that's what i like to do so yes uh both not a lot and a lot <laughs>
0: <laughs> i would I say none of that yeah. is not a lot you have a lot <laughs> that's it
2: <laughs> but it's a good thing yeah it is. we love what you, we love what you put out man so that's yeah
0: yeah Give us all my the book. stuff, all of the the Ronnie books. We're here for it.
2: <laughs> I'm just got a greedy face. Give me. I
0: do. Thing. I'm greedy for all <laughs> the books. I want all of the books. I'm sorry.
2: I'm not. You sorry. don't even have time to read all the books. Come on. <laughs> don't care. I
0: am a book hoarder. I was actually talking to someone today that said that they call it being a book dragon because I there just hoard oh, I like the books that. and I crouch upon them as my hoard. Okay. So. Well, you
2: you were you were like my 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 troglodyte. I joke that MJ is my beautiful little troglodyte, but maybe you could be like my beautiful little dragon hoarder You know what? I think that's a lot nicer than troglodyte. I, I was gonna
0: say I love that. I feel like I just went up like
2: fifteen levels
0: in oh, yeah. fantasy.
2: You're still in a cave. You gotta girl. No, dude,
0: Ronnie. That's why he calls me the troglodyte because I I work from home at my day job, and then all yeah. I do is write and read. So I literally just live in this cave yeah. all the time yeah. what
1: more
2: do you need though If you're content right it's that's minimalist.
0: what i'm saying i have snacks and my computer i'm fine and
2: you got a cat you got Thor- I, you already I, have I, thorin you already have thorin oak and shield in the cave
0: <gasps> oh you're well set. then i've already failed as a dragon
2: <laughs> he's what that's some serious subterfuge that's some long-term subterfuge he's playing like, the long
0: game he's been yeah. here like nine years
2: <laughs> one day you're gonna wake up and all your fucking books are gone oh,
0: my books <laughs> One. No, oh just the God. one, whichever book is the Ark Stone. Every Anyways. single
2: book except The Hobbit, just as a fucking sick joke. Just <laughs> right. so oh I know God. who did yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Well, MJ, no longer troglodyte. You are my dragon hoarder. Yeah. I love it. I'm and he, here for she's it. She's my bestie. I don't give a shit. We're, we're just like making fun of each other. Whatever. <laughs> All right, buddy. Uh, to close out, can you give listeners and viewers, A, a good bit of soundbite writing advice, and B, tell us a weird or random fact that you find to be utterly fascinating?
1: Oh, uh, I guess I'll start the right first so I can think of a fact. Oh, man. Um, do this because you love this and not expecting to get rich or anything out of it. Um, if you want to get rich out of the arts, choose music. I, I'm like not joking about that. Like <laughs> In terms of music, I know so many gig musicians who do like church performances and just they're not even like famous or well-known but the amount of money they make is obscene because um, there's always needs for really good musicians and w- weird places you don't think about writing is unfortunately like one of the least valued arts in terms of pay to valuation i know everyone says they love books but the way the industry supports authors and the way authors are supported en masse um like we're seeing with ai stuff isn't it doesn't unfortunately add up um do it because you love it and then if you make lots of money that's great
2: like
1: it God, weird fact oh man god i don't know oh god no if i say that i'll get sued um
0: well now you kind of have to (laughs) no
1: i'll tell you guys afterwards because it's a weird car fact (laughs) i'll tell you guys afterward but that's a weird car mechanic fact and like a bazillion dollar company could probably sue me for saying that oh (laughs) shit okay which i and i can't afford that um (laughs) Oh man, I don't know. What, what about I'm like a
0: random to... mythology fact or something, just to give you some? Because I uh, I always feel bad with this question because people are like, oh god, oh, no every I fact. No, I actually learned. do know.
1: No, I do know one actually about that. That's actually pretty cool. Um, so weird fact <laughs> that's with really popper that we're we'll, probably going to talk about later too is um, Achilles in the original version of the Iliad was never shot through the heel by an arrow. That doesn't exist. That was added later. Um, in the original mm. versions, he was never invulnerable either. It was his armor. Um, that was invulnerable uh, there's a poem called the achilleid written by a roman poet like uh, 91 to 94 uh bc i believe or is it 80 i can't remember that one oops but you can google it and it will confirm it and the british museum also has um online archives confirming this but that's where the addition of him being dipped in the river Styx and held up by his heel to achieve yep. invulnerability comes from so that's a huge like thing that people don't know but it's become popularized super- and now fake but true to the new version yeah. of the story that people believe
2: oh dude well, that's that that's the crazy thing about just like, you know, fake story history. And well, that's the thing that like it like. kind of dovetails yeah, yeah.
0: back into what we were talking about with stories, right? Like, yep, there's multiple versions and what's true Full you know? circle,
2: baby. I love yeah. It. Awesome. It's awesome. All right. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for hanging Thanks out with us for today, me guys. Dude, absolute pleasure. And uh, for anyone who contributes to our Patreon at $10 or more a month, there'll be a reading by Ronnie from The First Binding. So you can get a taste of that book. We highly recommend you go check that out and go pick up uh, the first binding and support what he does. Go, go pick up the grave report series as well. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah. Just anything that Ronnie writes, uh, Ronnie, can you let folks know where they can find you on social media?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I do have a, just Facebook slash RR Verde fan page there. And then I've got a fan group you can find through there. Twitter is where I'm most active. Um, so that's just at RR Verde. I'm also on Instagram under the same handle. I do apologize in advance. I'm very bad with Instagram. Um, direct dms because they go to like a, another hidden inbox i didn't know the yes. had yeah and i have been sleeping on so many requests there and then because of this if you're on twitter and you find me just bring up my fan discord it's probably the best place place to have direct access to me um i include people all the time and i'll just send out a free link i don't care anyone's more than welcome to just join um but i always have discord active somewhere and i can reply
2: right on and, uh, everyone can look forward to only fans in the near future. That, that fucking smolder baby. All right. You can also follow SFF addicts on Instagram and Twitter at SFF addicts pod, or you can follow me at Adrian M Gibson, MJ. What about you?
0: Yeah, you can find me across all the main socials. So Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at MJ coon books, all one word.
2: Excellent. So that's it for this episode. Stay tuned next week for part two with Ronnie to hear our mini masterclass on the hero's heroine's journey, which I am very, very excited to dig into. For now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.